And welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane. With me as ever, that bandana assassin, Alex Friedman. He's a badass strength coach out of Denver, Colorado. I am a sports chiropractor, strength coach, and wrestling coach in Scottsdale, Arizona. Today we're going to be talking about a new series that we're going to start. And it's going to be based around specific areas of the body the different pathologies or injuries you might get, as well as the ways to train them. So bring in our two kind of specialties where healthcare and strength conditioning and giving you a practical episode to help with your training. So Alex, let's kick it off. So yeah, we wanted to talk a lot about the core and trunk stability in this episode. I think um, still to this day, it's one of the mis- biggest misunderstood areas of training within the body is the the trunk and the core. And I mean, we can start first off, and this has been done before within the fitness exercise science, strength conditioning realm, but just for the general athlete or the sport coach that hasn't specifically looked into trunk training, we all all understand and appreciate that core stability and having a strong uh, trunk area is important, obviously in grappling. And I think wrestling is one of the most important areas to be strong, but I want to start just by defining where the trunk is in the core. And a lot of people say, you know, we're doing abs or we think about the six pack muscles that are the the superficial parts that are not necessarily the most meaningful um, stabilized. But when I'm talking about the trunk or the core, and those are the words that I kind of like to use because they're more um, all encompassing. I think about from the collarbone, from your neck, down to your tailbone, through your hip girdle. So all of that muscular that attaches and uh, resides in that area from the collarbone to the tailbone is where I understand the trunk and the core. Yeah. And then, so from a practical standpoint, from the healthcare side of things, I like to think basically from what's called diaphragm to diaphragm or for our pop can. So instead of being from clavicle down, when I'm looking at what the way I'm going to go about this, this kind of forage into the healthcare is going to be based around from the, the bottom of the thoracic spine, which is your mid back to your sacrum, which is going to be your pelvis. So basically from your rib cage down to your pelvis, that's what I'll be talking about based around the different um, injuries as well as different ways to train it in a, in a more effective way, we'll say. So one of, one of the ways, just kicking this off, one of the ways I like, one of my favorite ways to train the trunk and one of the best rehab strategies as well as getting back into training is just picking up heavy weight and lifting it and just walking around with it, right? Our farmer's carries are different carry type exercises where you have to resist the movement of the weight, trying to pull you left or right, front to back, and just walking around. Well, Austin knows that I agree with him there and he knows that he's, he's going to gain some points for that. Um, but exactly. And- it's all about brownie points. <laughs> right. And so I mean, you can cite all the EMG studies that you want, um, the muscle activation studies or, or things like that, but it's pretty consistent that our strong compound lifts, deadlifts, back squats, things like that are the most taxing and the most quote unquote activation of your trunk and stability muscles in the core. Um, they're going to activate those muscles and recruit them to a way higher degree than a plank or a low intensity core endurance exercise, which there's places for both. But if we're talking about core strength and strengthening the trunk and getting it to a, a higher position to tolerate load, then we're talking about our compound lifts. Well, and I think it's also important to note to talk about the musculature in the area because everybody, like you were saying earlier, the the superficial most muscle is going to be our rectus abdominis or that six pack muscle, but that's the one that in all reality has the least influence on the stability of the trunk because it's so far away from the spine, so far away from everything that stabilizes. So we have the outside muscles, which are going to be the rectus abdominis on the front, 
And then you got those big old back straps, the paraspinals on the back. In a little bit more in depth, you have your oblique muscles. They're going to lay like almost, uh, we'll say like a V going towards your pelvis and a V going towards your butt. Those are going to be your internal and external obliques. And then all the way on the inside, the one that we really want to focus on stabilizing our spine with and stabilizing all of our movements with is going to be our transverse abdominis. And that's going to be the one, it's like an internal weight belt that just wraps from diaphragm to diaphragm all the way around the midsection of the person. And that's the one that we, it, it literally does nothing when we do a sit up, but it's the most, it's the most important muscle of the trunk because in order to get develop power like something i tell all my athletes is you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe the only the only way to develop power is to have a strong trunk and that's going to be focusing on trying to to load and trying to stabilize the trunk through that transverse abdominis in different movements yeah 100 percent um when i was kind of in depth learning my um, power lifting or learning a little bit more about weightlifting. one thing i always thought of and, and austin can go on tangents about breathing and breathing techniques for for days and stuff but one of the biggest things i thought is that i use my breath to activate my core head out right so that that's going to recruit the most important the higher um quote-unquote functional movement or muscles the more important ones first and then the outside is just doing its support, its sub job, not taking the brunt. So I'm a nerd out for a little bit on breathing because <laughs> this, this, if you've listened to any of our podcasts, this is something I'm extremely passionate about. So the best way to load that transverse abdominis is not going to be that, that tucking your belly button towards your spine, that hollowing that some people have learned. What the most recent research shows is that the best way to do it is by inhaling and dropping your diaphragm. That eccentrically or stretches and strengthens the muscle, that transverse abdominis. It causes it, it's the strongest contraction you can create. And it's going to cause a eccentric load on the transverse abdominis to stabilize the spine. And a cool added bonus to that is it distracts the vertebra. So it decreases pain if there's any sort of disc, which I'm going to get into later, disc, entra- or, uh, disc issues, as well as nerve entrapments. So breathing in general, that's one of the best ways you can do that, as well as breathing to load and to stabilize the spine. That eccentric contraction, once you learn how to create that on your own without having to pair it with breath, it's called a pulse. I think Stu McGill, like there's, we've talked about the double pulse theory before, but it's a pulsing sensation you can do. That's one of the best ways that you can then stabilize your spine. And once you can control that, your power generation just keeps going through the roof. Yeah. And that's why every workout, every, we have a daily mobility or our movement prep that we have every athlete that comes in the facility do before their session. Like we have a, uh, a requirement at the gym that I'm coaching at that you come 10 minutes early, you get the movement prep done. And every time there's a breathing exercise on there. And I, I'm sure to explain to the athlete why we're doing this breathing exercise, as well as practicing your breath and expanding your diaphragm and recruiting those muscles that we're teaching to transfer into some of the movements we do in the weight room. It's a good reset for their body a little bit neurally, mentally, things like that. But all the benefits that you're talking about, Austin, we have to teach our athletes those breaths so that they can use them later on within the, the workout when we're trying to actually strengthen the core through, through the, the compound lifts and things like that. So um, breathing is going to always, always be a huge component of trunk stability and training. Well, and it's, import- it's important to note that once you get proficient at breathing, it doesn't have to be paired with breathing. That's, that's a huge 
aspect that a lot of people, they, when, when they get stuck on breathing, it doesn't translate well, right? So something that, I, that I've been actually trying to do my own research on and making some case studies on is the transition from unloaded breathing to rotational loaded breathing, because that's going to be MMA. If I get somebody on the table with their feet up and stacking their diaphragm perfectly and all of these different things, and they can create that canister, but then it doesn't translate when they're on their feet in a loaded postural position. That literally means nothing. So the fact that the goal is I should be able to dissociate breathing from bracing because technically they're not the same, even though we pair them and you have to learn them together. Once you get proficient, you should be able to separate those two things. You should be able to brace without breathing. And that that's something that, again, I'm very passionate about because it's it's a motor skill and it can be trained. And it's it's a, something a lot of people don't do. Yeah, that's where a lot of our loaded carries and, and some of our more um, rotational or kettlebell type of work, I think fits in perfectly when we get into um, introducing into movement with that brace and continually moving because you can't uh, expand your stomach and create what I call the power barrel where like you stick your belly out, right? So, uh, I like to call that power barrel because I'm a meathead, I guess. Um, but you can't do that consistently for a 45-second farmer carry, right? You're going to have to be able to, to stay braced while you're continuously breathing. So that, that, I think that offers a good transition when we're doing those um, carries, um, loaded movements, a little bit of rotation within a lunge or something like some of those type of activities. Right. And, and that's to for like, I just want to talk more on that. So when you think about lifting up something heavy, think about grabbing a deadlift off the ground, you inevitably have to brace on your own. Nobody's teaching you that. So the trap that some people fall into is they think, oh, I need to force my air out. And they're thinking so much that they don't actually focus on the real movement, which is just brace, just, just fucking brace. So it's even though you have to learn it in segments to learn it efficiently, as soon as you set up for a deadlift or a loaded carry or something like that, you're going to do it inevitably. So just let the transference happen. So I think, I think that's an interesting point and in, in scaling it back a little bit where we see the, the power lifting influence and some of the weightlifting influence change how we do our strength training and our strength and conditioning with different sport athletes, right? Because when you are going into a powerlifting competition or weightlifting competition, your mind is consciously on the bracing and the breath and the expansion and the tightness because you're lifting a maximal load and you want to get as tight as possible and create the strongest structure and frame that you can to lift this heavy amount of weight where that's not always the goal. And, and we don't usually have our MMA athletes under as much load or lifting near maximal capacities as, some, as a powerlifting comp competitor. Uh, so th that's, I think, where the, the practice from one sport transfers a little too much into some sports training, right? So there's a little bit of a uh, sociological tie there or how we learn to coach. Yeah, I, I, something that I heard secondhand, a quote that's always stood out to me about bracing, it's I heard it from Rich Olm, who he heard it from Rich or uh, Robert Lardner, who's a PT in Chicago. Um, and he said, you need to brace as much as necessary, but as little as possible. That's going to be the highest output and the most efficiency for your bracing for whatever sport you're doing. So he works with a bunch of dancers. Yeah. They don't need to brace as much as a power lifter, but they still need to brace to protect themselves during the, all the crazy movements that they do. Well, you think of it, on, uh, I think of it, or I, this is how I picture it on a continuum of like fluid versus. I was rigid. just, I was just about to say that. I love that word. It's, ex it is a continuum. 
Yes. And, and it's, it's fluid for me. Cause like dancing, you still need some structural postural bracing and, and obviously some core activation to accomplish those uh, positions and movements. But that's the way of more of a fluid movement oriented sport basis where it's free flowing and there's a, a choreography with it, but you're not trying to be on the other end of the continuum as a, a power lifter is you're not trying to be as tight as possible and stay as stable in one track, one specific uh, position as strong as you can. So th there's a continuum there and MMA is way towards that fluid end, right? Very seldom in an MMA um, uh, match, maybe when, when you're grappling in some points or you're, you're having, you're fighting off a choke or a submission in some points, you need that really strong isometric strength. But for 90, 99% of the time, you're in that fluid state where you're moving and you're flowing and you're throwing and, 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 and things are, are a lot more athletic than strict, rigid. This is the movement inside of our box that we live in at the weight. Yeah. So, so basically what we've got so far is the six pack means absolutely fucking nothing and breathing is important. But Alex, how do we, how can we tomorrow train, train these qualities? Yeah. So that's exactly where I wanted to go. And um, there was a, a blog post that I read a while ago, and I'm, I'm going to kick myself for not remembering who wrote it. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But um, and it was titled, you know, 21st Century Core Training. And, and it's a transfer of mindset, right? We're no longer doing our, our sit-ups, and that's our last episode of Why Sit-Ups Suck. And we're not doing our concentric core work where we're doing side bend or, or anything else. Your core in an athletic framework, your core works to stabilize and to transfer force between your, that, that's all it does. It, very seldom does your core pull you into a movement or do you actively move through your core. What your core works really well to do is stabilize and transfer power from your legs to your arms or for your arms to your legs. Um, so our training needs to start reflecting that, right? We're, we're no longer doing the Roman chair sit-ups and, and tearing transverse abdominus muscles and things like that. We are using our core to stabilize, and that's where you get your payoff presses from. That's where you get your farmer carry from. That's where you get your side planks and your unilateral stuff from. So using your core to stabilize your body where you're acting in your limbs or where you're trying to increase the load and not break posture. Um, that isometric strength paired with the breathing and the bracing, that, those are the prerequisites to some of these trainings. If we can use our core to stabilize that movement and move with our limbs, that's where the, the training direction needs to go. Um, so as far as applying it tomorrow, what I think about is um, resisting movement is more important than creating movement in your trunk. And I'll let Austin talk a little bit about how he incorporates that into his either healthcare patients or the strength and conditioning that he's doing. Yeah. So, um, so something I like, it's a common term is anti-rotation, right? So you like what, like what Alex is saying, you want to resist movement. That's going to be more important for the trunk than creating movement. The trunk is going to be the middleman between the legs to the arms to generate from that ground reactive force from the foot all the way up through your hand. That's punching somebody right in the face. So a lot of the times I train what I don't know if it's a real term. I call it reactive stability. Is that, is that something that's a real term or did I just make that up? Well, those are two words that you put together. Exactly. So something that I like the way that I like to train my athletes with reactive stability, think about a med ball. I care a lot more about the catch and the stability factor of their catch and not having to go back and forth than the actual generation of the power for if I'm doing it for a core work, right? So say they're doing a side med ball throw or like a shovel pass. I care that they catch and stick the landing a lot more than the actual generation of the force. 
again, if we're doing it for the, what is the goal? The goal is for trunk training and the anti-rotation. So that, that's something I do a lot. The same thing you can do a bunch of landmine exercises where you have, you don't move the hips. It's called just landmine anti-rotation and you just move left to right with your arms. I, I realize you guys can't see me, but I'm making the movement. Um, and like and fool. yes, you I look like, like a fool. fool, but you move left to right with the landmine with a little bit of load on there. And that's going to resist movement. Also, that's when we get into our low bear exercises that if you, any of you follow my Instagram page, you know, it's my favorite exercise ever. So that's where we get into our cross crawl patterns. That's where we get into our weighted, uh, weighted crawls, our crabs, our low bears, our sling work that's going to be what allows us to train that trunk in a little bit more of a, I guess, useful fashion and a little bit more efficiently. A hundred percent. What that reminds me of is when we're talking about resisting movement, completely lost my train of thought. So that's good. That's okay. Concussions, just blame it on concussions. Yeah. Right. All right. And the other thing that you could think about was going to be, so trying to be more efficient with your training to limit any sort of flare-ups that may occur as well, right? So a lot of the times with with the low back, that's especially from grappling athletes. So anybody coming into MMA or if you're a wrestler or jiu-jitsu practitioner, a lot of the times lumbar disc herniations, that's going to be almost, I, I would say it, I think I could say this pretty, pretty soundly, that that's going to be the highest likelihood of injury for a grappling athlete in, in the low back. So because of that rounded nature of the low back, whether you're in a wrestling stance or you're playing guard or you're out playing a top game, which I'm starting to realize that everybody does with extremely poor posture, um, you're going to put loaded pressure on the lumbar discs. The more you do that, the more it's going to cause a pressure inside the disc. It's called intrathecal pressure. And that's going to potentially cause further irritation and irritate the nerves. That's where you feel like after a bad grappling day or a hard grappling day, you feel quote unquote sciatica. In reality, that's just irritation at the nerve root level that you have irritated. And that's going, it's inflammation that's causing that nerve root, which again, attaches to the sciatic nerve. It causes that radiation or that radiating pain down into the hamstring behind the knee or just tightness in general. So from a healthcare, Oh, what up, dude? I was going to say, that's exactly where I was at my senior year wrestling. I, I, I had been, you know, training pretty relentlessly as my senior year. I want to end things on a high note. And then all of a sudden in January, when we hit our, you know, our overload phase, I got into a wrestling practice and I was in my wrestling stance and I could not move. I had to keep my back flat. Anytime somebody tried to snap from my neck or I tried to bend at my low back, it shooting pain and I couldn't move and I had to eventually step out of practice. And it was like that for a good three weeks um, where <laughs> I had my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, tying my shoes, putting my socks on, like, and, and it was, it was excruciating um as far as the limitation and movement that there were and and i mean it was my senior year so i tried to go back um probably not having gotten back to 100 percent, but i had to make a shot at it um but no that that i've, I've been there and I, it's interesting to understand the the pressure and, and the intrathecal stuff that's going on rather than just you know understand that your back spasms or it feels really tight. Right. Well, and that's something I, I, I love talking about because a lot of people just think, oh, their back tightens up. My back is spasming. What's your back just doesn't spasm out of nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. the, the job of the muscle, the, the number one job of your brain is to make sure that there's no damage to your body. That is the number one job. It's just survival. 
So it's going to do everything in its power to make sure there's no further irritation. That then locks up. If there's any sort of damage in the nerve, because the nerves control the muscles, guess what? It locks up your back. It doesn't allow you to move in that in that way that's irritating. Yeah. So then your mind, sorry, your mind says we're not moving. We're keeping this area stable because more movement is going to irritate us more. So it's better to not move than to continue doing damage. A hundred percent. And that, and that's exactly what happens with, with disc irritation and and disc herniations is that it locks up. There's two main spots. It's going to lock up. It's going to lock up the low back musculature. So those paraspinals we talked about, or if you've ever felt a back spasm, that, that like crazy back spasm where like Alex said, you have to have somebody else tie your shoes for you. The back doesn't just spasm out of nowhere unless there's direct trauma. Most of the time it's because the disc or the nerve is irritated and it locks it up. The other place that it's going to lock up is if you ever feel like you have a hamstring, like a quote unquote hamstring tear or hamstring tightness all the time. That's not your, your hamstring is just not tight. That that's not how that works. Like, <laughs> like it, you, you really don't have tight hamstrings. It's locking up because of there's nerve irritation coming from either the disc or potentially a lot less likely the actual sciatic nerve has irritation around it. Yeah. And, and I mean, that that's more um, common thought for me now is that, you know, all, all muscle tightness and things like we like to think about it in a mechanical sense, because, you know, we are, you know, products of science and in whatever type of society we live in that I nerd out on, but we always think it's the mechanism. We always think it's the muscle that's tight when really it's the innervation and the nerves that create the tight. Um, and we can still work on those through different mechanical lenses, but the nerve is the root of the problem. The nerves and the central nervous system is where we should spend our time. Exactly. And that, and that comes back to like, we've talked about in the past where like, yes, to get through a workout foam roll, like, and you have one of those things going on foam rolling's great. Those massage guns are great. You're so right's great, but that doesn't fix the nerve irritation. So it's a great way to continue to keep doing what you're doing, but that's why you're not progressing. And you feel like you have to do that every practice is because it gets rid of the muscle tightness, but it doesn't fix the actual problem. What's the problem? It's the nerve irritation. You're treating the symptoms, not the the root cause. And I, I feel like that's exactly where all my, my rehab went for a long time. And I was in a situation where I, you know, had three weeks left in my senior year where we were trying to just get me day to day to be able to perform. So in that context, it, it was correct for me, but we were treating, you know, we were doing all the cupping, we were doing all the, you know, stretching and then um, just things that were treating symptoms like dry needling and uh, McKenzie type stuff. But that's again, trying to get me ready to go that day versus when I want to, if I wanted to truly fix the problem and change how I moved, that's some of the more integrated strengthening and uh, performance related repatterning that I would have had to do, but that was a, a six month process that couldn't fit into that three week window. So um, for me, it was the right context, but I think as an athlete, it helps me understand, you know, are we treating the symptoms to get me ready to go today? Or are we changing the pattern to make me better in six months to two years? I think that's a, it's a bona fide way to look at it in my mind. Well, and, and that goes into like, I'm, I'm bringing up problem. I, my papa, my, my mom's dad's always told me, don't make problems if you don't have a solution. So we brought up these problems, what it, that the disc herniation is and what it's surrounding. Now, how do we fix that? And what, what's a good line of care to try on your own so you don't have to waste a shitload of money and, and going to, or, or cause like if, if all you got to scalpel, everything's a surgical case. A lot of the times these cases that don't need to be surgery end up being a micro discectomy. So 
how can we try to fix it on your own? Not saying that like, cause I cannot diagnose and I cannot give specific medical advice, but a, a good blanket thing would be looking at acute, acute phase of care, subacute, and then going into our loading phase. So like Alex is saying, to get you out of spasms, a good thing to do would be go to a healthcare practitioner, go to a PT, go to a Cairo, go to an ATC, whoever you have at your disposal and get some soft tissue work that's going to decrease the flare up as well as instead of doing any sort of flexion based movement. So a sit up, that's why I hate them so much because most people have disc issues and sit ups just make those worse. Do some sort of a loaded carry or do some sort of a, a prone press up, which is basically just a yoga, yoga cobra, but you do that repetitively. So doing that for like 10 sets of 10 in a day, um, th- those are going to be great ways to strengthen your trunk without being flexed as well as decrease nerve irritation because those yoga cobras, that extension that the low back needs and never gets is going to be a good way to decrease issues. Yeah, then you get, okay. what up? well, I was just going to move on to subacute. You got any more acute? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that the, and I don't know where this fits on your continuum or your your process, but the the way to address it is exactly you said, find a healthcare professional, but then utilize some of this talk and train your core differently or repattern those things and find more effective core training techniques. And I think that's that's what we're, where we're trying to hit on the head is, you know, train effectively versus just um, doing more, or doing the same old shitty things. Well, yeah, and that's that's good to note that So a lot of, if you're not in camp, like Alex was saying, he had three weeks left of his senior season. He had to just mitigate symptoms. That's the situation. If you're in camp, you really just have to mitigate symptoms. You're, you're in camp and you have these fights coming up, but when you're outside of camp, I think it's extremely important to note that you, if you take a week and a half off and you let, you let the acute phase pass and you do all the right things it's a lot better to take a week and a half off and then get back to training at 95 to 100% than try to train through it at 75% and stay at 75% for three months. Because that's what ends up happening if you, if you don't go after the proper care and you just like, oh, I can get through it and you just keep being in pain and that's going to decrease your overall output, which isn't going to give you as much meaningful work. So then moving from there into the subacute, that's when we, like Alex is talking about, we start patterning in different trunk exercises in a safe, effective manner. So this is going to be, we increase our loaded carries. Maybe we do a suitcase carry. So just one side versus a farmer's carry, which is two sides. This is where we get into our low bear crawls. This is where we start controlling. And in the acute phase, there's also breathing, but we've already talked about that. So I'm not going to further elaborate. Um, Subacutes where we really get to have the fun stuff. This is, this is like the cool little baby exercises I do with my people. Um, and, and this is where I get to have a lot of fun as a practitioner, but we start getting into the loaded stuff, the stuff that you would let a lot of people think is just strength and conditioning. But in reality, a good rehab professional, that's what they do, where we, we do payoff presses. We, we do all that type of stuff. And that moves right into training and just training and making a robust athlete or a robust uh, practitioner and allowing you to then just transition right from rehab to performance, which, which is something that's extremely beneficial. Yeah. And I think it's even less done or less fluid of a, a process than what you just outlined there. Like, you know, obviously I think we have PTs and, and some chiros and, and people that are really good from getting that acute phase to some of the subacute. And then it's like, we jump straight into 
and we've talked about this before on the podcast, we go from that you know, 30, 40% capacity, we jump and then say, all right, you're clear. And they go to practice and jump into the 90% type yep. of stuff where again, we'll try and make this process fluid and, and flow so that we get from that, you know, 20 or 30% when you're starting the, the loaded carries, starting the breathing patterns, starting the dead bugs and things like that into more of a strength and conditioning or a, a um, you know, half practices and, and, and things like that to make that transition flow from a 30 to a 40 to a 60% to, to then maybe we'll, we'll be ready for sparring or, or something more intense um, down the line. And like I said, if you got, if you're off camp, you got time for this. Like there's no, there's no rush per se, or there's no immediacy to, you know, train as hard as you can at a suboptimal load or a suboptimal effort. Uh, so we want to make that smooth so that we can carry the pattern, the new pattern that you learned through the carries, through the ro- rotary stability, through the medicine ball work and make those patterns now the new default patterns that we get into our performance with. So Austin was talking a lot about, you know, when we were doing, you know, a med ball side toss, like a shovel pass, and he's looking at the, you know, the reciprocal action of catching, stabilizing, and then reloading into the movement. We can turn that into a performance mechanism just by changing the emphasis of our face, right? We're looking at the core when you catch and stabilize and rebound, and then we can almost use a stretch shortening cycle with our core being tight in the correct pattern and feel the stretch and the load in our twist, and then utilize that to rebound and make the throw harder next. So it's an integrated system. It's not in this segment we're looking on, on care and core activation and then, you know, boom, three weeks later, now it's a performance thing. Throw as hard as you can. Use that same mechanism, but just get more fluid at it and practice it and change the pattern that you're utilizing in order to increase performance. And that's where the performance um, care comes into play, where we make things better based on doing them, not based on giving a tool and then ignoring it and saying, go back to training hard. Yeah. Yep, it's just it's just a graded process. Like Alex was saying, you can't you can't miss the subacute phase. You you can't miss that sixty to eighty percent. Because if you go from 30, 30 to a hundred, guess what? You're just gonna have to pay more money and come see somebody like me again. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna be back in the in the clinic or back in the <laughs> rehab. Exactly. And and that's really what building a fighter is all about. It's it's about giving coaches, strength coaches and skill coaches, practitioners and dietitians the tools to do that. It's, it's being able to speak and put everything on a continuum because that, that's, where, that's where combat athletes don't have that, that good, those good tool sets to go from 30 to 50 to 80 to 100. Yeah, and we're trying to give the practitioners that perspective of seeing the whole process and seeing how everything should and, and eventually will be integrated. Right? It's going to be a performance team where everybody's communicating on the same language, on the same understanding of where an athlete's at and having that perspective where the athlete doesn't need that perspective. The athlete needs to focus on what they're doing and how to perfect um, their performance and their technique. Let the, the coaches, the practitioners, everybody handle that perspective. And the more the athlete's knowledgeable about that, you know, great. But we shouldn't make the athlete be the expert in every The athlete is focusing on their performance, and then we can outsource some of that to a, a coaches, practitioners, and everything like us that should, again, have the perspective to see the whole performance paradigm not just what I'm doing in my style. Exactly. So in summation, breathing's important. Six packs suck. The best way to train the trunk is for anti-movement, whether it's rotation or anything else or resisting. The number one pathology for low backs and grappling is disc issues. And the best way to get rid of that is to get out of flexion and get into extension and then just train harder, not smarter.
or train smarter, not harder. I, I messed up my own saying. God dang. Train smarter, not harder. Um, so if y'all have any questions for us, shoot us an email or a direct message on Instagram. That's all in the show notes. Uh, thank y'all for listening. This is going to be, like I said, this is going to be a segment that we're going to continue to do based around different areas of the body just to make you more efficient in your training and hopefully get some practical tips. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.